from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the Thursday night edition of the program. If you want to join us, give us a call, 833-4, I don't even know the number, 482-5337, 833-4-Valdez. And there's a lot going on, right? We've got the Supreme Court was in session today. Um... The New York Times of all publications, the gray lady is uh, predicting that Trump will score a victory and remain on the ballot. Now, I don't know if they listen to this show, but I think I, I said the same thing. I think many said the same thing because it makes all the sense in the world that you got to let the people decide. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit with somebody who was there uh, on the ground at the Supreme Court today listening to the oral arguments. Uh, but everybody's uh, suggesting that the Supreme Court is skeptical and uh, they're positioned well to keep Trump on the ballot. So that's the thing. And, of course, Joe Biden, he dodged a bullet yesterday when uh, the uh, special counsel, or maybe that was earlier today, I think it was last night, though, uh, where um, the special counsel says he's not going to be charging Biden. And uh, he did a press conference today uh, indicating same. And, uh, I mean... I don't know. Nobody can see me. And if you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel. But, you know, show of hands here. Right? Raise your hand if you thought Joe Biden was going to get charged in the documents uh, case. Right. I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, if, if I woke up tomorrow and heard that Joe Biden had got indicted for anything, I, I would. I don't know. I might pass out. I, I, don't, I don't believe we live in a world where that can happen. Well, number one, because he's president and the uh, Office of Legal Counsel has said that you, you can't indict a, a a uh, sitting president. So I get that. So I, I don't expect any charges to be brought against Biden um, the same way I didn't expect any charges to be brought against Trump, uh, even though he keeps arguing that, you know, that presidents have an immunity uh, because of the office, the same way Congress members have, uh, you know, qualified immunity. And up until a couple of years ago, a lot of cops had qualified immunity. But it doesn't surprise me in the least that that hasn't happened, right? It just doesn't. It's a, it's a sad truth. And let's see what else we got here. Biden uh, Biden makes another gaffe in a press conference. I'm looking for my audio list to see if we have the... Do we have that president of Egypt? Okay, I can't see it. So, uh, Well, I want to do this, the, the one I'm talking about. Let's go. All right. What we're going to do is none of those, since I can't see it. We're going to talk about what's uh, going on at the border. Because the border seems to be an increasingly dangerous place. Women are being raped as they come across. Children are, are you know, getting ill. I remember a couple of years ago they, they found, like, a dad and a, a male and a small child. Nobody knows if they were uh, related or not. But I would presume they were. It's, 
from the positioning of the bodies, again, this is 2018, maybe 2019, uh, it looked like the adult was trying to protect the child, you know, surround himself around him. And and then after that, another d- child died in, in, in custody after you know, he'd come across the border and was ill and then died from that illness. Uh, because people get sick when they're coming across the border. And I feel like there's there's always a degree of anger that comes with people that are going across the border. And like, you know, don't come to our country, get out of here, blah, blah, blah. And I get it. Uh, it's very frustrating to, to feel like you're in a country that has zero protection. But the reason we have zero protection is because of a white man, right, <laughs> named Joe Biden, right? It's not because of the, the brown people coming across the border as much as it is the, the, the white man inviting them. And I'm saying this for the sake of being provocative. I really don't care about anybody's race. But my point is we, we have to focus on all the lives that are being lost, whether they're citizens or not. I feel like we're we, the United States, our government, our president, namely, is the one that's really perpetuating this this crime against humanity, this this just atrocity on people. And what do we do? I mean, it's day in and day out. And I think many um, I won't say many of us, but I think many uh, maybe in the media and others that, that see this on a regular basis are desensitized to it. And then others are only looking at it one way, like this is my country, I'm losing my country, I can't stand the Democrats. I, I get that. But I think there's a, an angle of compassion that I feel like is escaping me. I can't speak for anybody else, but I feel like it escapes me when I look at these things and instead of looking for a solution or seeing, seeing how we're being hurt or the totality of how we're being hurt, I look at just at how I'm being hurt. And I think I'm not as hurt by someone providing cheap labor um, as, as that person losing, you know, a child or this woman being raped coming across because of Joe Biden's lack of integrity, Joe Biden's lack of 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 just being a, a good person and allowing this to happen and not putting a stop to it, not, you know, putting back in the migrant protection protocol, the MPP, what they call the Remain in Mexico policy, not. um suspending catch and release every one of those executive orders that he signed coming into office reversing all of trump's policies not only at the border but with respect to energy production in the united states where we were energy dominant and and now we're not and now we're energy dependent on the middle east and he was in saudi arabia hat in hand and all of that transpired over the last few years so it makes sense to me that that he doesn't do well in polls lately and that Democrats are trying to like, you know, suggest alternatives. But I think there's a, the angle of compassion, at least for me, uh, you know, what would George W. Bush call it compassionate conservatism. Uh, I don't know if that's really the, what I would call it. I think it's just, um, common sense humanity. I think that's something that has been escaping the conversation and I don't want to lose sight of it on this program. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. Anyway, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court, and then we'll talk about Joe Biden and uh, all of uh, the funny things he said in the press conference uh, about an hour and a half, two hours ago. And what else? we got a few things lined up for you tonight, so just stick around. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, familia, welcome back, amigos. And today, like I said, uh, President Trump's attorney uh, was making his oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court, and his name, Jonathan Mitchell, discussing the the Colorado Supreme Court decision disqualifying Trump on the ballot, saying that it's just simply wrong. Listen to this. Colorado Supreme Court held that President Donald J. Trump is constitutionally disqualified from serving as president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is wrong and should be reversed for numerous independent reasons. The first reason is that President Trump is not covered by Section 3 because the president is not an officer of the United States, as that term is used throughout the Constitution. Officer of the United States refers only to appointed officials, and it does not encompass elected individuals, such as the president or members of Congress. This is clear from the Commission's Clause, the Impeachment Clause, and the Appointments Clause, each of which uses officers of the United States to refer only to appointed and not elected officials. The second reason is that Section 3 cannot be used to exclude a presidential candidate from the ballot, even if that candidate is disqualified from serving as president under Section 3, because Congress can lift that disability after the candidate is elected, but before he takes office. A state cannot exclude any candidate for federal office from the ballot on account of Section 3, and any state that does so is violating the holding of term limits by altering the Constitution's qualifications for federal office. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is no different from a state residency law that requires members of Congress to inhabit the state prior to Election Day when the Constitution requires only that members of Congress inhabit the state that they represent when elected. In both situations, a state is accelerating the deadline to meet a constitutionally imposed qualification and is thereby violating the holding of term limits. And in this situation, a ruling from this court that affirms the decision below would not only violate term limits, but take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans. Well, there you have a very uh, uh, measured um, argument to the Supreme Court, in, in my opinion. And I want to get the opinion of somebody who's uh, an appellate attorney before the Supreme Court, a former White House a lawyer and senior legal analyst at Breitbart News, Ken Klukowski. Welcome, sir. Rich, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So um, you were observing uh, these the, the this case today, and I want to get your a your reaction to uh, what Mr. Mitchell just mentioned, and uh, overall your reaction to what you saw in court today. Well, I'll tell you, it was a fascinating oral argument to be at. I've, I've been to the court probably about 200 times. Uh, I also filed one of one of the briefs uh, in the court. I had the honor of representing former U.S. Attorneys General Ed Meese, Michael Mukasey, and Bill Barr, uh, along with uh, scholars and, and the great people at Citizens United. Uh, and it, it, it was fascinating seeing the different angles that were unpacked in this case. And as uh, and as Jonathan mentioned, that there are several separate reasons uh, for any one of which 
President Trump is not disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and they, and they unpacked each of those issues. What I found fascinating uh, is, uh, you know, in a, in a radio interview I did right before uh, – uh, oral argument when I was at, right. there at the court and we were waiting to go in is is I said that given how extreme uh, and how divorced from history in the text I thought the Colorado court's decision was uh, a four to three decision where the three dissenting justices were highlighting how extreme the majority opinion was uh, it, it's it's uh, I I said you know, I would hazard the guess, reluctant to, but I would hazard the guess that I thought this decision might even come out uh, unanimous nine to zero or eight to one. Now, after coming out of argument, uh, I, I have to say I, I would actually double down on those numbers. I I think this wow. will not be a five four decision or even six three. I think it's going to be unanimous or close to unanimous. Wow, uh, and that's uh, that's I guess encouraging to hear um, that the. The Constitution's not dead and being shredded. Um, the, what the, I think the case that he made, from what I could understand of it as a layman, uh, made a lot of sense, right? The president's not a constitutional officer. He's elected. He's not appointed. And that was the spirit of it as in you know, what he cited. But what are some of the other um, aspects that uh, you just mentioned uh, that on their own also disqualify this case? Yeah, you're right that the phrase officer of the United States, when it's used elsewhere in the Constitution, because it is used in several other places, refers to people appointed by the president, not to the president himself. And it doesn't refer to elected officials either. And that makes sense with Section 3, because Section 3 says senators, representatives, presidential electors, it goes through a list. And that says officers of the United States. So it's like, so the, Colorado's argument is that the president is just folded into this catch-all provision at the end when things like members of the House and Senate and electors and stuff are being individually named that, for some reason, the president is not individually named. Uh, you know who really was interested in that point, because it's a point we talked a lot mm -hmm. about in the brief that I uh, uh, co-authored, was – Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, appointed oh, wow. by President Biden, made huh. the point uh, in I, I have a write up coming out from Breitbart News talking about uh, each of the justices where she said, why is the word president not mentioned when it's mentioning all of these other uh, offices? Because elsewhere in the Constitution where there is such a list. The president is always named, and he's always named first. It's the, the offices are typically listed in descending order, starting with the president. And this did not come up in today's argument, but it is in our brief. In the early draft of the amendment, when Congress was debating it in 1866, it did mention president. It mentioned president and vice president. And during the debates, they stripped out those words, inserted the words presidential electors, Instead, and so it was a deliberate change. And uh, the, again, that wasn't really unpacked or an oral argument. Right. Uh, it, they they were hitting a lot of issues, but that history is before the court. So all of that is one totally separate issue. And again, I know we have limited time here, but a totally separate issue mm -hmm. is that we also have that in uh, is that also section three is not self-executing, meaning it takes legislation passed by Congress. It creates power for the government to do it, but then it's up to the lawmakers to determine what the specifics are, uh, and that, in that there is a section in the 14th Amendment, Section 5, 
that says that Congress may, by appropriate legislation, implement, you know, the, the, the provisions of this amendment. And we see that with, other, with, with several other parts of the 14th Amendment. For those who say it is self-executing, it's like, well, wait a second, you know, what would that look like? Do you just have one partisan official, like in this case, the Democrat Secretary of State of Colorado, who can just unilaterally declare, I issue the finding that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Therefore, I have sole power to say he can't be on the ballot. Yeah, it's crazy to me that one person would have such power and that the people don't. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, I mean, so that issue was there. Now, uh, another point that came up related to that uh, was... Congress has actually implemented one part of this in a statute. Uh, They have defined insurrection as a federal crime. It's found at 18 U.S.C. Section 2383. And it says right there in 2383, uh, you know, that if you engage in insurrection, you're disqualified from federal office. It says it right there. The problem for the left is this. President Trump has never been convicted of insurrection. He hasn't even been charged with insurrection. You have these prosecutors out there, and despite all the things that they have charged him with, they have not charged him with insurrection. So Congress has actually put legislation on the books that would carry into effect Section 3, but the powers that be have not tried to bring charges against the president under that, and they used to have other provisions in place, other enforcement mechanisms. They passed it in a law called the Enforcement Act of 1870. But that has, but the rest of that law has long since been repealed many decades ago. And so it's saying, look, the ball is in Congress's court. And there's even one law still on the books that can be used for this. But where Congress chooses to not have currently, you know, a broad-based system for evaluating claims like this, individual state judges and state officials don't have like this automatic power in their back pocket that they can just whip out and disqualify competing, uh, you know, politicians from the other party. Right. Folks, stick with us. We're going to continue with our guest, Ken Klukowski, uh, SCOTUS appellate attorney, former White House lawyer, and Breitbart News senior legal analyst. He's knocking it out of the park and helping us understand what happened at the Supreme Court earlier today. Don't go anywhere, folks. Coming right back with Ken Klukowski and me, Rich Valdez. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I take responsibility for not having seen exactly what my staff was doing. It goes in and points out. 
things that appeared in my garage, things that came out of my home, things that were moved, were moved not by me, but my staff. Hold on. We're not going to talk about Joe Biden just yet. That was a misfire. Um, the audio that I asked for was Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, and it was what uh, we mentioned in the last segment. Listen to this. What is very clear from the history is, is that the framers were concerned about charismatic rebels who might rise through the ranks up to and including the presidency of the United States. But then why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3? The thing that really is troubling to me is I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred, and president is not there. And so I guess that just makes me worry that maybe they weren't focusing on the president and, for example, the fact that electors of vice president and president are there suggests that really what they thought was if we're worried about the charismatic person, we're going to bar insurrectionist electors and therefore that person is never going to rise. This came up in the debates in Congress over Section 3, where uh, Reverdy Johnson said, why haven't you included president and vice president in the language? And Senator Morrill responds, we have. Look at the language, any office under the United States. Yes, but doesn't that at least suggest ambiguity? And this sort of ties into Justice Kavanaugh's point. In other words, we had a, a person right there at the time saying what I'm saying. The, the language here doesn't seem to include president. Why is that? And so if there's an ambiguity, why would we construe it to, as Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, uh, against democracy? And again, that is uh, Justice, uh, Associate Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Our guest is back with us, and he's a former White House lawyer, a Supreme Court appellate attorney, and the senior legal analyst at Breitbart News, Ken Klukowski. Ken, uh, you'd mentioned uh, this exchange earlier, and I just wanted to play it so the audience could have all of the context. <laughs> and I thought it was funny. Thank you. <laughs> it really was. Well, I mean, you're agitated. teeing up the very next sentence. I, I think what you got there was perfect. And I was checking some audio myself in the background. Uh, the very next sentence. This was the only part where, you know, with decorum, you sit there in complete silence, especially in the bar section. You're right there. In fr- you're just feet away from the justices. You know, you're an officer of the you're court. You're not allowed you know, to it's, it's, Yeah. You, well, it's it, at most people, if a, if a justice tells a joke, everyone can laugh like tastefully. But right. it's but aside from that, you know, you, you don't express anything. Uh, it's, you know, you sit, you kind of act like a judge. You just sit there quietly listening. And um the very next sentence from they what me out uh, of there. that well, <laughs> I understand <laughs> the um, uh, it, it's it's the the very uh, next sentence or two after that exchange is where uh, is where the the Colorado uh, voters lawyer Murray uh, made the comment where he said uh, you know that this that this person uh, Reverend uh, Johnson then agreed with Senator Moore that, oh, yes, yeah, it is covered. That is not what he said at all. Uh, it, 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 this is the one spot where I wished I could have gotten up and say, that's not true, you know, <laughs> is, uh, is as we unpacked in our brief, 
what what he then said, the man who the senator who brought up this point, is he said, "Oh, well, perhaps I was mistaken because you're mentioning these individual officers here. You you hadn't mentioned president, but perhaps I'm wrong." And and as you read the exchange, you know this is a a senator. He's speaking in genteel fashion on the record during floor debates with another senator that he's not that he's not fighting with, that it's not an adversarial exchange. So as you read the language, it's all a bunch of pleasantries and courtesies. And, you know, you don't point your finger and say, no, you're an idiot or whatever. You know, the senator's always talking about my good friend, even if they can't stand him. You know, it's like my good friend from Tennessee or my good friend from... Absolutely right. And so as you read that exchange, you see it appears clear to me. Johnson was flagging what he saw as a problem. And they's like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I just want to point this out. So it's so when when the Colorado lawyer Murray was saying, oh, and then Johnson agreed with more, absolutely not, nothing of the sh- the sort. Instead, it actually spoke to what Justice Jackson had been saying, and that was, hang on a second, it specifies Senator. It specifies representative. And it goes through this whole list of people, and she's just saying, as, and I can't say it better than she did, where she's like, why don't they say president? Now, when you couple that with the history, that in the earlier address they did say president, and they said vice president, let me tell you what was going on there. And that was they were not, as you read those debates, Congress was not concerned about some Confederate general having such nationwide popularity that they get elected president. What they were concerned about is this. And that was like, if you've ever seen the movie, have you ever seen the movie Lincoln, Rich? Yeah, sure. All right. And, and I hope all of your listeners, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, you know, right? watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Fa- fantastic. You know, a lot of great history in there. And it's the story of the passage of the 13th Amendment that ended slavery after the, at, towards the end of the Civil War. And as that movie shows, it passed by the skin of their teeth. They just barely, a united Republican Party, just had to offer all sorts of offices and jobs and just to persuade barely enough Democrat members in the U.S. House to join the Republicans to give the necessary two-thirds to propose a constitutional amendment to go to the states for ratification. This is coming right after that. Okay, that was 1865. The debates we're talking about next year, 1866. They just barely got this measure through, and they knew they needed additional constitutional provisions to be able to bring the country back together. The concern was, wait a second, if we readmit all of these southern Confederate states, what if they start electing a bunch of Confederate generals as members of the House, or Confederate generals, or Confederate senators as part of now the U.S. Senate? We won't have the Mm -hmm. votes to pass anything. We barely passed what we got. If we bring in all these people that were at war with us, we're we're going to be gridlocked. And so the concern was we need to be able – there needs to be a mechanism for disqualifying people from the South who w- might have enough popularity to get elected to a local position. And they even had a check on the presidency by taking out the word president but saying that they could disqualify presidential electors so they could, di- so they could disqualify disloyal southern presidential electors in those states as well. And by, and by determining if someone was disqualified from being an elector in the electoral college, 
you could make sure that you didn't have like this rush of support to get some major Confederate leader uh, uh, elected to nationwide office. So that's what was going on here in that history perfectly matches with what we now see in the text that they were debating today at the Supreme Court. Yeah, that is an outstanding explanation. And, and it really is my um, my original interest in the Constitution was around the history of it because I couldn't understand why why it existed the way it did. And if you don't, uh, in my opinion, if you don't look at the, the, the founders and really what informed the founders view, um, you know, the... Um, uh, the older documents, uh, the Magna Carta, the, the the ideas of some of those that came out of the Enlightenment. If, if Absolutely. Until, until I understood that, then I understood better how the framers got to the um, to, to where they landed on a lot of things, and um, and that exactly right. really colors it. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I really do. Now, when we come back, I want to get a quick take from you on on Joe Biden and not getting charged. Now, again, as a political person. Uh, you know, observing this, I think I never expected him to get charged. One, because the Office of Legal Counsel says you can't indict a sitting president. And two, because I feel that um, he's above the law, not because he deserves to be, because he's a Democrat. And, and I, I just didn't see a world where the special counsel was going to go, yep, we think uh, Biden did something bad. We're coming after him. I just didn't see it happening. But um, we're going to hear a clip of audio that we got a preview of before. And uh, I want to get your reaction to that as well. Folks, we're on with Ken Klukowski, uh, Supreme Court appellate attorney, former White House uh, and Department of Justice lawyer, and the senior legal analyst at Breitbart News. And as he mentioned earlier, uh, wrote part of the brief and was there in the courtroom today as uh, the oral arguments were heard at the United States Supreme Court. So keep it locked right here with me, Rich Valdez, and our guest, Ken Klukowski. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. I take responsibility for not having seen exactly what my staff was doing. It goes in and points out things that appeared in my garage, things that came out of my home, things that were moved, were moved not by me, but my staff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got to love it. We went from a president that said the buck stops with me to a president that says my staff, my staff. Anyway, um, I'm not going to do my Biden impression any longer. We've got Ken Klukowski with us, uh, Supreme Court appellate attorney, former White House lawyer, uh, Breitbart uh, senior legal analyst. And uh, Ken, what's your take on on this documents case? They're obviously charging Trump now that he's not in office. Uh, in my opinion, a huge case about not a lot. If, if you think I'm wrong, uh, correct the record. 
Well, it's before we go there, if I may, just one sure. one quick right thing to, to tie up regarding the Supreme Court this morning that I thought was fascinating because it, it, it shows – well, I'll just get right into it – is two-part thing. First of all, with Justice Neil Gorsuch, right. uh, it's – because, of course, Colorado is saying, no, this is self-executing. Just, you know, if Trump did it, then he's invalid and anyone can declare him to be disqualified. And Justice Gorsuch is like, OK, so when does he become invalid? And they said, well, he would have been he would have been disqualified from office uh, on January 6, 2021. And he's like, OK, he still had two weeks in office. He said, did, did he stop being commander in chief right then? He said, like, so should military commanders have like immediately started just deciding to disobey his orders because he's not, he's no longer really the president at that point. Mm. Now, the Colorado lawyer clearly not schooled up. He was in way over his head. He was yeah. totally out of his depth. Is, uh, just interrupt. Said, well, I, I think I, bringing the case, yeah, uh, go ahead. that was one of my questions for you earlier, and I probably should have waited, yes. but since you brought it up, I, I feel like do do these guys walk away with egg on their face? Do, do, do the rest of like you know these high level lawyers like yourself look at them and go, man, what a chump! I can't believe this guy did that. Well, it's it's I I, I don't want to put myself at that level. I'll <laughs> say that I'll say that I do work alongside lawyers who are most definitely at that level, where you see them make just critical errors in front of the court, and you realize, okay, if you're going to be a partisan, you know, activist, uh, you know, in in your area or whatever, maybe that kind of stuff will fly there. But when you're in front of the right. U.S. Supreme Court, you have to set aside the bumper stickers. And the and the jingo and uh, and you have to actually you know do the job of carrying the argument and if your argument falls apart, you know it's no amount of smooth talking is gonna is gonna bridge the gap, and uh, and so Gorsuch, and so as this guy came back and said, well I mm-hmm. I, I don't. Yeah, well, military leaders can't, you know, decide the legality of the presidency, and you're just looking at these people stunned because you're like, you know. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Right. A military officer <laughs> under UCMJ, a military officer is legally required to disobey an unlawful order. So if this guy, if Donald Trump had become a private citizen, he has he can't issue any lawful orders. So any military general getting an order from him is actually under a legal obligation to treat him as no different than you would just a private citizen on the street. He might be a great right. guy, but he's not your commander in chief. And so totally stepped in it there. And then separately and relatedly, when um, when the Colorado solicitor general was uh, was when Justice Alito was expressing, are, are you worried about the the Pandora's box that we could open if all of a sudden, just at the last minute, you know, some states could declare one candidate an insurrectionist, other states could declare another state to be an insurrectionist. Maybe, you know, maybe they could do this. He was talking between this and the the other Colorado lawyer, uh, Jason Murray, you know, was saying, what if they do this like three days before election day or anything? As he's laying out these hypotheticals, she came back saying, well, you know, what, what if they just all start declaring each other to be insurrectionist and you're disqualifying whole candidates in like whole states at the last minute you could you could throw a, a whole presidential election into utter chaos and uh and, and she said well i i just think we need to have enough faith in our institutions that that wouldn't happen 
And it's, Hmm. you know what, when you're trying to get the Supreme Court to hand down a historic decision that will fundamentally change the way presidential elections work in this country, you don't want to say, oh, I don't think we need to worry about it. You You better have a tight answer as to why what you're asking for does not open the floodgates to the nightmare scenario that they that that they brought up, especially since not only did Sam Alito say it, but Chief Justice John Roberts said it. So it's like, okay, if if the justices, these are the people who decide your case. If they tell you they're concerned about something, guess what? You just became concerned about it. You right. you, you know, and, and even if it's not where you were going, you're like, that's a great point, Mr. Justice. And then you just run with whatever they're saying, because ultimately they're the ones who decide what the outcome will be. And that is just not what we saw today. Yeah. And that was really the, the gist of my question. I was thinking, you know, when when somebody like um, Jason Murray uh, brings brings this case and, and makes these arguments, um, I, I can't help but think that, you know, guys like yourself, uh, just people that have argued before the Supreme Court and have done that type of work uh, can't help but look at them and say, ah, poor kid, you know, <laughs> you know, poor guy. He's in way over his head and, you know, you're drowning and you shouldn't be here. Um, and, and it seems like a partisan attack, right? The, the whole case, uh, to me, seems like it lacks a lot of merit, but they brought it anyway. And, and I'm, I'm just suspicious of that. Um, we, we are scheduled to wrap with you here, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Biden. I don't know if you could stick around. Ken, can you? Uh, it's we, we could we could do something real tight. I'm afraid I can't do the whole segment, but it's, sure. uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be here regardless. All right. Stick with us, folks. We're coming right back quickly with Ken Klukowski. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, the deep state is at it again. Every now and again, they get into the machines, but we're still on with Ken Klukowski. And, and Ken, I, my, my thought here is, you know, I didn't expect Biden to, to have charges brought against him, but I'm wondering why they bring him against Trump and they didn't bring him against Biden. What's the legalese there? Well, I'll tell you, there are two things concerning about that. One is legal and one is political. Uh, the, the, the thing that, or I should say policy rather than political, the policy thing that's alarming is if, if a man is so, uh, is so addled, so feeble-minded that, he, that you think he'd be too, just sympathetic in a courtroom because he seems like he's not all there, is that a guy you want controlling the nuclear launch codes uh, of a nation and leading the world's superpower? So I, I, so I think it was a stunning indictment of President Biden's lack of fitness for office if they're saying that this guy was so clueless in our interviews, we just felt sorry for him, and we thought even a jury would feel sorry for him. They'd be like, you know, so, you know that's a silver alert. Let's please get this guy to, 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 to an old folks home. I'm like, first of all, that is not a resounding, you know, that, that, that doesn't inspire a confidence as to who you want to lead your country. Uh, But legally, it's alarming to say, wait a second, do we want prosecutors making decisions based on how sympathetic they think a defendant looks because of some infirmity that they have? You know, we we should have equal justice under the law. Amen to that, Ken Klukowski, and thanks for uh, sticking around. Uh, Let everybody know how they can find you quickly. You bet. 
we, we lost Ken, but you find him on Breitbart News. Ken Klukowski. Folks, we're coming right back. We're going to continue looking at the news of the day, in particular, what's going on in the world uh, regarding the law. Don't go anywhere. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And uh, we continue our discussion tonight, right? We've been talking about what happened to Supreme Court today. And the Supreme Court uh, is well-positioned, right? Most media outlets are saying that they're going to side with the Constitution and that Trump is on the right side of that. So it's going to be a victory for the Trump team. At least that's what it appears to be. Uh, I don't see, again, we just had... Um, Ken Klukowski on, who's um, just shared with us that he's been before the court 200 times and or at the court 200 times and that he felt that this was going to be a 9-0 unanimous or 8-1 uh, at worst. So um, encouraging. Seems like it's going to be a good day for El Trumpito. Now, some of my friends, good people, good patriots, pa- people that I love, but I think have a, a misguided view of how the Constitution and the political system works, believe that the Supreme Court is going to make a decision on election fraud and that somehow the Supreme Court, which doesn't imprison anyone, is going to imprison people. And uh, when I hear these things on the Internet and on social media, I can't help but think, come on, don't fall for that stuff. This is literally what foreign governments specialize in, destabilizing our people, destabilizing our political systems so that they can put these ideas into people's heads. And, you know, it it does not surprise me in the least when you have a group of people that are like, I love this country and they're pounding their chest and they're absolutely, you know, in love with America. And I love that. Patriotism is fantastic. And then they say things like, you know, the Supreme Court's going to do something they've never done. And you just sit back, folks, grab your popcorn. Oh, this is going to be good. (laughs) And they're so confident that this is going to happen. But it's not. It's not happening. You know, there was um, some brothers who brought these uh, cases, uh, who tried to bring a case to the Supreme Court, multiple cases, Uh, two brothers named Brunson a while back. And, And they were on the basis that they were trying to get to the Supreme Court. And they, they got to to the point where the Supreme Court had to hear them because they filed it a certain way with the state court and it, it got bounced to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court immediately said, no, we're not hearing that. And that was that. But they were alleging a similar case, right, that the, um, the election in 2020 was a complete fraud. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's not true, but what I'm saying is the Supreme Court's not going to make that decision because it's just not right. There's there's no case on the docket that even suggests that there's going to be a decision like that 
Uh, moreover, there's not a case where the Supreme Court's going to recommend that anybody go to jail or that or that uh, in addition to anybody going to jail, that they're going to send them to a military tribunal. Right? And these are some of the crazy things that I hear. And I, they're crazy because they're not congruent with the facts. They're not congruent with reality. They're not congruent with history. And now you could say, but Rich, is what we're seeing congruent with history is an open border congruent with history? No, it's not. Uh, and, and it is an anomaly. It's something we haven't seen before. Um, some people would say, so then what, what about um, massive mail-in ballots in a presidential election? Is, is that congruent with history? Not necessarily. But again, in 1860, there were mail-in ballots during the Civil War and uh, because it was a civil war and and there was massive fraud and um i think i've talked about that on this show and there were you know the the tilden hayes election was a big deal right that's why we have the electoral count act so we have some precedent for that uh but even then there you know it, it went a different way and the supreme court did make a decision on on that in in some ways so, but but again nobody was jailed for this a- and but it's happened, right? History can repeat itself. So I'm not saying that that didn't happen. What I am saying is that this idea that the the most egregious characters in this, um, I'm going to call it a movie, this movie that we're watching, they, they're not going to go to jail like bad guys do in Hollywood movies. In real life, the bad guys make money and they go on to make more money. And you know, it's usually a, cu- a couple of good guys that'll take the fall somewhere so that they could say they're the bad guys. And, and lamentably, that's what I see happening here. So for all the uh, uh, direct messages and inbox messages and, you know, emails and text messages that I get, people telling me, you know, can't just watch, wait and see. The, the, the true president is going to show his face. It's going to be Trump. He's working with John F. Kennedy Jr., who's not really dead. I mean, the craziest things that I hear. Um, I just want to encourage everybody to to let go of that stuff and to treat it like fantasy football. If you want to play that game, just say, OK, it's fake. And, you know, it's it's our version of a, of a live action role play. It's what we'd like to see happen. But it's not reality because reality is what ends up happening in the courtroom. Reality is what ends up happening when the law is actually applied. And, and that's what we're seeing. And we saw that earlier today in the Supreme Court. And we're also seeing it play out with... Um, Trump's uh, appeal now for presidential immunity. The uh, appellate court says, um, no, you're, you are not immune. Um, and that's that. So now that's a three judge panel in the DC circuit court. They've decided this issue that um, Trump brought to, to, uh, to the court. And now that's going to likely, in my opinion, is going to have to go to the Supreme court for them to decide does a president have uh, the type of immunity that he's uh, presenting in this case? And I think he's making a very good case. So uh, to get to the bottom of that, I want to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the uh, Mies Center and the Simon Center. And he's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. John Malcolm, welcome. Hi, good to be with you. Likewise, sir. So when we talk about this um, issue of presidential immunity. Um, I'm yeah. wondering, you know, for the sake of the listeners, if you could just uh, lay out a little bit about what the, the Trump team argued in that case and then 
sort of, you know, maybe in the next segment, what the uh, appellate court kind of responded with. Sure. The Trump team argued that the president uh, has a constitutional obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that includes the election laws and that that is what he was doing. And that for a court to second guess that violates separation of powers and that he could not be criminally tried with one exception. And that exception is that he was impeached and convicted. Uh, and the Court of Appeals rejected that argument uh, on various grounds. They said, you know, no, a criminal law is a statute that limits the discretion about what a president can do, that he can't, on the one hand, take care that the laws be faithfully executed while blatantly violating those laws. And they also said that impeachment uh, really just decides whether someone gets to hold office or not. It's a political punishment of some kind. It's not a criminal punishment, that that is a separate process, and that has to go through uh, indictment and a court proceeding. And I want to get to um, the the crux of it and some of your analysis on that when we come back. Folks, we're on with John Malcolm, vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. He's director of the uh, Mies Center and the Simon Center and the uh, Gilbertson Lindbergh Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, amigos, welcome back, familia. We're talking about Trump's presidential immunity claim uh, getting uh, denied by the federal appeals court. And, of course, your calls are welcome, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Our guest is John Malcolm. He's uh, the VP of the Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. And, John Malcolm, you, you gave us a nutshell of what was going on before uh, help us uh, pick this apart. Uh, they they rejected the Trump claim on on several um, areas. Um, help us understand that a little bit. Sure. So they said, look, we as a court of appeals have to assume that all of the allegations in the indictment are true. They may turn out at the end of the day not to be true. That's what a trial will will determine. So they said we have to accept that a grand jury indicted uh, former President Trump on these four charges and that he intentionally and knowingly engaged in criminal violations. He knew that the claims he was making were false. He knew uh, that he was you know, <laughs> trying through illegitimate means to stay in power. And the president, uh, former president basically said, look, you get, don't get to question anything I did while I was in office. And the only way you can do that in a criminal trial is by first impeaching me and convicting me because the impeachment clause 
is explicit in the Constitution that right. once somebody has been impeached and removed, they can be prosecuted. And what the Court of Appeals said was that goes too far. No man is above the law. That includes the president of the United States. There had been you know, a lot of other officials, uh, judges and, and, you know, congressmen who have left office. They have been criminally charged, even though the crimes they committed could arguably connect it to actions they took as judges and legislators. So a judge issues a ruling with the reason the judge issues a ruling is he's being paid a bribe, that sort of thing, and that they are subject to a criminal enforcement. And the same thing would apply to the president. Another argument the president could have made is that there is case law that says that former presidents are immune from civil lawsuits so long as a president was acting, quote unquote, within the outer perimeter of his actions. And the reason the Supreme Court did that was to say, look, every action that a president takes is going to irritate somebody. And if they are going to be subjected to a civil lawsuit, that could open the floodgates to hundreds, if not thousands, of vexatious litigation against a former president. And this court ended up saying criminal laws are a little bit different. There, there's more important considerations in enforcing those. These are left up to the Department of Justice. It's only happened once in our history. There's no real evidence that this is going to open a floodgates. So we're going to come out with a different ruling. Rather significantly, they actually put in a footnote that said there's been an argument made that state prosecutors would also engage in all of these uh, prosecutions. But we don't have to decide that case today. We're only talking about a federal prosecution brought by one federal prosecutor. So the next step here is for this to go to uh, a larger panel of the appellate court or directly to the Supreme Court. What's that process look like? That's going to be largely determined by President, former President Trump. So you would normally think that, and this may well be what he ends up doing, he wants to push this trial out as late as possible, not only in the hopes of getting a victory in a higher court, but even if he loses before the higher courts, he wants to push this case off until after the election. So you would think that he would apply for what's referred to as a rehearing en banc by the entire D.C. Circuit. And he may well still do that. The panel tried to force his hand a little bit by saying, President Trump, you can appeal to the Supreme Court if you want to by Monday. If you appeal to the Supreme Court, we will withhold the mandate issuing the formal opinion until the Supreme Court decides what to do with that petition. But if you petition for rehearing on bonk before the full court, we're not going to withhold the mandate. We will issue the mandate. And that will give Judge Chutkin the opportunity to say, okay, we're now going back on a trial calendar and we're con- going to consider all these pretrial motions ah. that have been filed. And and obviously, Chutkin seems to want to do that yesterday, way before yes. the election. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. Now, she was forced to put things completely on hold before the D.C. Circuit issued its opinion. But now that it's issued its opinion, once the mandate is issued, until the, unless and until the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court stops it. She can you know, reopen her courtroom doors, start issuing rulings and have hearings on pretrial proceedings and set a new date on the trial calendar. Now, help us understand the angle. And I've heard this argument made by many that um, uh, and several, uh, but among them, uh, Attorney General Ed Meese, Mark Levin and others have uh, been saying that the appointment of Jack Smith as special counsel 
violates the Constitution's uh, appointments clause, and therefore this whole thing doesn't work. Walk us through it. Yeah, very, yeah, very interesting argument. So, so General Meese and, and, and others have argued that Jack Smith was not properly appointed under the appointments clause. For a long, long time, Jack Smith was a Senate, was in the Department of Justice. He probably even had a Senate-confirmed position at some point. But he left the Department of Justice, and he was detailed over to The Hague, where he was engaging in international uh, you know, prosecutions for war crimes, things like that. The Appointments Clause basically says that if you are a superior officer, you have to be uh, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and then appointed to that position by the president. And there is a provision that says, you know, if you're in the attorney general or the deputy attorney general or you're a United States attorney, mm. all of these people have been appointed to, you know, nominated, confirmed and appointed. Jack Smith did not go through that process. So the argument is he is a superior officer, but he did not get properly appointed. The D.C. Circuit said in a footnote, yes, this argument was raised, but it wasn't really addressed below. It's a collateral issue. We're not going to address it. There is precedent in the D.C. Circuit that actually rejects that argument. There was a similar challenge to Bob Mueller, who was a special counsel who was appointed, right. of course, to investigate former President Trump and somebody who was subpoenaed to appear in before a grand jury in that investigation raised that issue. The D.C. Circuit rejected it. So that's the law on the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit could, again, sitting as a full court, reverse that, or the Supreme Court could reverse that. When Jack Smith originally tried going up to the Supreme Court, that issue was raised. But then when the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case on an expedited basis, there was no reason to issue a ruling in that, on that issue. But if it goes back up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court may very well ask the Department of Justice or ask the special counsel to answer that very important question. Wow. Great analysis, uh, John Malcolm from the Heritage Foundation. Now, John, let everybody know how they can keep up to speed with the work that you're doing. And uh, clearly you've got your finger on the pulse of this stuff and you guys are putting out a lot of scholarly information. How do people um, access that? Sure. Well, they can always go to the Heritage Foundation website and type in my name, John Malcolm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M. Uh, they can also follow me on Twitter. I post a lot of stuff that I write uh, at Malcolm underscore John. Uh, and, you know, in general, people can also, if they have real questions or concerns, they can just send an email to the Heritage Foundation. It'll probably find its way to my inbox. Outstanding. John Malcolm, you are a uh, gentleman, a patriot and a scholar. And I thank you for staying up late with us. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Folks, we're coming right back. We continue our conversation and we're going to talk a little bit about why are airplanes falling apart in the skies? Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. America. Welcome back, amigos. And you remember uh, a while back, uh, about a week ago, there was a lot of talk about 
the Boeing 737, uh, where the door, the door fell right off. It was ripped out while they were 16,000 feet above the ground. And it turns out four bolts were missing from the door plug um, when it blew off. And that's according to the um, NTSB. These four important bolts were missing from a Boeing 737 MAX 9 that lost a passenger door, uh, door plug, excuse me, during the flight. And that's, again, the National uh, Transportation Safety Board. So uh, I'd, I'd seen a number of a number of cases, uh, or news reports, excuse me, on this particular story. And, and I thought, what's going on? And it turns out more and more people started looking into this. And what they found was there's a major fuselage problem with these these folks that there's just a whole problem here. So you got Spirit that's now ramping up their robotics to reduce these problems. Uh, you, they're saying it's going to slow production down. It's going to slow down delivery. I don't know how often people are buying new 737s. Um, forgive me. I'm very ignorant. I've never bought one. And we also have um, the uh, U.S. Airways Airbus A319 um, that, that people are saying, what's going to happen with that one? Are people going to, you know, is that going to increase the likelihood of people buying you know, other products? So I want to kind of get into to this with somebody who really does know all about this. He's an executive with uh, Northwest, uh, retired, and he's an aviation consultant and really knows a lot about this. We've had him on before, and he's terrific. Jay Ratliff, welcome back, sir. Hey, always, uh, always a pleasure to be here. You bet. So, um, what light can you um, shed as the, the this Boeing mess continues? I'm frustrated. I really am. Boeing has been for generations uh, the definition of safety. Um, they have been the airline that, uh, or the aircraft manufacturer that has been more committed to safety with uh, regards to the policies, procedures, the the airplanes that they have built and delivered, and it shows uh, because uh, we've got Boeing airplanes taking off and landing every few minutes all the way around the world. But it was a number of years ago when we had the two Boeing MAX crashes, the Lion Air crash in October of 2018, followed up with Ethiopian Air crash, which was the other MAX aircraft uh, that killed them, uh, that uh, crashed on March 10th, uh, the year later, about four and a half months later, and 346 lives were lost. We found out later as the investigation continued, uh, as Boeing tried to immediately deflect you know, any, any real responsibility, saying that it was pilot air, it was a new airline, make, probably was maintenance. I mean, they were throwing all, all kinds of garbage. That we soon found out that uh, as the investigation continued, Boeing was lying to the Federal Aviation Inspectors. They were lying to airlines. They were omitting things to pilots about the new Boeing MAX aircraft. It was very embarrassing. It had been going on for years. And there was uh, kind of an apology that uh, mm. Boeing threw out shortly thereafter, saying that safety is the core of who we are. And they went on to say that they've intensified their commitment to continuously improving safety, their products and service, blah, blah, blah. This was dated September 30th, 2019. Now, I'm going to suggest, or at least my opinion is in reading this, they didn't do any of that because yeah. what they what they have done apparently, and this is just my opinion as I look through the window, is that they are getting their butt kicked right now from Airbus, the European aircraft manufacturer, that is producing uh, aircraft at a record pace. Uh, people are buying them all over the world, and they're doing everything they can at Boeing to keep up. 
you have whistleblowers that work for Boeing that come forward saying, look, the, the schedule is the most important thing at Boeing, not us doing our job. Uh, quality control inspectors that used to be there have been removed, uh, all trying to cut cost and move these airplanes through as quickly as they can. And in the process, somehow having airplanes leave the, uh, the facility delivered to airlines that I guess should have a sticker on them that says uh, some assembly required. Because when you have <laughs> these bolts and nuts that are missing, I mean, it just it, – How does just, that happen? It, I, I have I, I don't I have no clue, and I get so frustrated because the number of checks these things go through, the number of people it passes by, and for it to not be noticed tells me what else is happening that we also don't know. Uh, and, and any and now that Boeing's you know standing up saying we take responsibility, we're going to do blah blah. All I'm thinking is, hey guys, uh, 2019, you were making these same promises. You, you told us you were going to up your your in intensity on making sure everything is done properly and you're not and you know that's why i I have a hard time believing any of the words that come out of anybody's mouth because Mm -hmm. they simply haven't done what they're supposed to and you have a lot of people that are saying you know is it a point where you know jay do you do you not fly on a a boeing aircraft well of course i I fly all the time and if it's a boeing airplane that's fine if it's a boeing max would i be okay sure i would get on that as well but that doesn't mean i don't have concerns because these airplanes uh, that are being delivered as brand-new, state-of-the-art uh, machinery uh, to airlines around the world that have these operational de- defects is completely inexcusable. And, of course, the Federal Aviation Administration, who I think should have been camped out at the door of Boeing since the two MAX crashes a number of years ago, are now saying, okay, now we're going to send a couple more dozen inspectors, we're going to make sure they're doing what they need to be doing, and we're also going to make sure that Boeing doesn't increase the number of these airplanes per month, uh, which is right now at 30. They were going to ramp it up to, to more. But it, it's a real confidence crisis because yeah. we don't Who's believe what buy Boeing stands. Well, and, and my question what, is, what, what, how much does one of these cost? Uh, you're talking about a couple hundred million dollars easy for <laughs> these airplanes. And, and, of course, a lot of times, they, they depending on how many an airline buys, they're going to get a discount on some of these things, and some of them are considerably more. But but here's the deal. Uh, if, you, if you've got an airline like Southwest, they only fly one kind of airplane, Boeing. Now, they do that because it's, it saves them money on training. Uh, it saves their money on ground equipment. Uh, it, it is a brilliant way to make sure you only have one type of aircraft uh, for training purposes and everything else right. from pilots to mechanics and everything else. Where are they going to go? Parts, They're not going to yeah. go grab a, a Boeing aircraft. Now, they should be getting a pretty sweet deal from Boeing on any future aircraft. But a lot of these airlines around the world that are saying we're preparing to make our next order, they thought with Boeing, are saying, well, we might want to rethink it. Now, I'm sure Boeing is scrambling right now trying to save every future order they can. They're probably offering every incentive possible. But because the confidence in Boeing has been so good long-range past, there's this thought process that, well, they're going to get their act together. So we'll accept this sweet deal where we can get a nice discount or whatever promises they're giving, and we'll keep the order we have to buy 50 or 100 of the narrow-bodied or long-range uh, wide-body aircraft. Um, but if you buy one of these and they have to be grounded for a period of time where inspections take place because something wasn't done that should have been done uh, after you've waited a number of years for these airplanes to even be delivered – it's certainly not the, the kind of, you know, let's exceed expectations at every point of contact that the Boeing product wants to be. And right now, I mean, they've got a black eye. The stock has dropped maybe 20-some percent since all of this. Most people think it's going to bounce right back once they clear this this hurdle. Uh, but it's just 
to me, it's just unthinkable that we can have airplanes that are leaving a production facility with multiple hands touching the aircraft with things not just not tightened, not installed at all. And the National right. Transportation Safety Board, that was one of their first questions was, this door doesn't look like it was ripped off. There, there, there's no... It fell uh, off. <laughs> exactly, because there wasn't anything that was trying to hold it on after other components failed. It just poof, out it went. And this thing had been in service for, what, 10 weeks or something like that, uh, numerous flights before. And I, I thank God nobody got you know seriously hurt on that because somebody didn't have their seatbelt on that was sitting had been sitting next to that door and thank God no one was, I mean out they go and we had so much stuff flying out that uh, that uh, depressurization when it took place I mean it, it blew open the cockpit door and remember that's wow. reinforced uh, right. it threw the pilot's right head yeah it threw through the pilot's head into the the console I mean it was it was intense wow. so this could have been a, a, a way bigger deal than it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons we got lucky. Uh, but we never should have gotten to this point because the Boeing of 2019 and 20, with all their promises, should have been delivering a better product than what they're doing right now. Jay Ratliff, stand by. We're going to come right back. I want to continue this conversation because um, that's just a, a scary thought. Plus, um, a couple of other uh, topics in aviation. Folks, we're on with Jay Ratliff, uh, aviation consultant and former Northwest Airlines executive. And we're coming right back. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Fox News, filtering by flights by aircraft. Listen to this. So uh, travel websites allow you, uh, certain travel websites allow you to filter out certain airplanes if you don't want to ride on a certain type of airplane. Well, guess what? Since this uh, incident has occurred where the door fell off, you've got the flights that are being filtered by uh, Boeing 737 have gone up by 15 times. 15 times the amount of people are now saying, I don't want to fly on a Boeing 737. And uh, that's according to the website kayak.com, which is a travel website. Jay Ratliff is our guest. And Jay Ratliff, does this surprise you, that high of a number? It doesn't. Uh, of course, anytime there's a situation where we have an accident or a near accident, you have uh, a kind of a flurry of of, of traffic as far as people looking uh, to avoid certain types of airplanes saying they'll never fly them again and then six months later they forget about it and they're right back on the same plane uh, but keep in mind that even if you let's say you are uncomfortable about flying a, a Boeing 737 MAX aircraft uh, if you happen to look at a future reservation and you see that's what you're confirmed with uh, you can contact the airline and most of the time they've been pretty accommodating if you want to change your reservation to fly at a different time or a different type of equipment or type of aircraft might be offered. The one thing, though, to keep in mind is if you are especially connecting at a hub anywhere in the country, 
you may not be scheduled to fly a, a Boeing Max uh, 737 or whatever your aircraft you're trying to avoid. But you may get there and find that they've done what we call an aircraft swap, where the airplane that you were uh, supposed to fly was late in coming in or developed some sort of a mechanical problem. So instead of canceling your flight, what they've done is what we call an aircraft swap. They've got an available aircraft there at the airport. They'll simply use that airplane instead. So if you're really going to take this kind of approach, you need to make sure that before you board each aircraft, when you get to the airport, just to make sure that the airplane that was scheduled is still what's operating. Because many times we do these aircraft swaps to keep things moving and flowing uh, as we try to keep those silver revenue tubes in the air. Oh, wow. And, you know, know, so, you know, it just it, it's okay to try to plan that in advance, but please keep in mind that things change frequently as you travel, and you just kind of need to keep an eye out on things because you don't want to sit on an airplane and think, I'm sure glad I avoided that airplane, and you look down at the emergency card, and that's the exact airplane that you happen to be flying on. Right. <laughs> and you freak out. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. really good advice because I, I didn't think of that, but I'm actually glad that that happens because, uh, you know, I, I don't know anything about that other than, you know, I fly, you know, pretty frequently, but I, I just expect it to work, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I never really know what's going on. And I'm just like, yeah, they, they the crew comes in, they, they clean it real quick and they turn it around. And, you know, most flights I've been on are on time. So I, I never really realized, you know, how, how challenging it is to, to keep that fleet moving and stick to a schedule. And, mm-hmm. and you know, what you've just brought up was a really interesting point. Now, I want to talk about something that's a little off, uh, off beat here, which is uh, Finnair, oh, uh, yeah. the Finnish airline. They're, they're talking about weighing passengers voluntarily as mm-hmm. well as their carry-on luggage uh, <laughs> because um, they want to uh, make this, um, I guess, better uh, and, and help passengers to... Um, to, I don't know, to, I guess, to volunteer their weight so that eventually they can require it or charge you more. What, what's the angle here? Well, the angle is that every so often, uh, many airlines around the world um, will spend a week or two or a season where they will collect the, the weights of the passengers that are flying. And they do that because we live in a world of weight and balance. Uh, every aircraft has a maximum takeoff uh, allowable allowance as far as how much weight an airplane can carry, both in fuel, cargo, passengers, all of that. So what we need to do is make sure that the averages that we are using, like a winter weight, summer weight, whatever might happen to be for passengers, is still accurate. So every few years, what will happen is uh, airlines around the world, and it just happens to be Finnair now, is going to be collecting this data where they're asking people to volunteer. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they just put scales at the airport uh, check-in counter that sometimes people don't even know that's there. And, of course, it's not like in Vegas where you get the jackpot sign above that's flashing the weight and everything for everybody right. to see. It's just collected so that the people in the home office can collect things and say, yeah, our averages are pretty much where they need to be. So it's a matter of safety, the reason that they're doing this. And we're seeing it a lot because, uh, you know, look, look as, as individuals, we have passengers that are getting a little bit heavier. And a lot of the yes. European airlines are using uh, kind of an average weight and balance that says – you know, they've, they've got a, a mean weight of anywhere between 150 and 180 pounds or so, and they've got different winter weights, different summer weights, because you're going to be traveling with more luggage clothes-wise in the winter versus the summer. So it's, it's all based in safety, and that's it. In fact, right. if you've ever flown a really small airline that might only have six or eight seats, sometimes they'll even ask you to step on a scale uh, so oh. that they can get the actual weight 
that's going on board the aircraft because when you have so few passengers, you don't have the benefit of the mean average where you right. have 185 people. So uh, they want to make sure that it's exactly where it needs to be. And believe me, when it's a matter of safety, I do not mm -hmm. care. I'll get on a scale so they know yeah. exactly what they're dealing with. Jay Ratliff, stick around. I want to come right back and, uh, and pull on a thread on that same topic. Folks, we're on with Jay Ratliff, aviation consultant and former Northwest Airlines executive. You can uh, check out his website, daytradefund.com. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're talking to Jay Ratliff about what's going on in the airline industry. And my, my question to you, Jay Ratliff, before we wrap up is what ends up happening uh, with Americans becoming larger and larger in terms of obesity? And uh, do we, I feel like the airline seats get smaller and smaller every time I get on a domestic flight. If uh, it's an international flight, they seem to be a little wider, but I, I, if the guy next to me, I'm 200 and um, about six or seven pounds. The guy next to me is heavier than me. He's spilling over into my seat. We're fighting over the armrests. Are there plans to, you know, charge more or make bigger seats? Well, big make big, yeah, make bigger seats. No, I, I wish, I wish they they would. They're going to probably just continue to get s smaller, making these the the good old days that 20 years from now we'll look back and long for, which is a scary <laughs> thought. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, Southwest has got a policy that if they have a passenger of size, they are able to go to the to the gate and say, look, you've got a policy, and Southwest will actually give them a second seat if needed and at no additional cost. Uh, other airlines many times will say, okay, uh, you, if it's going to take two seats for you to be comfortable, then we're going to have to charge you, you know, double. Now, if the flight's not full, they may charge 150%, or it may be no extra charge at all. But airlines have that kind of policy, and and sadly, it's a situation that, you know, I've had to have those conversations with passengers and try to break it to them. And most of the time they understand that the seats are getting smaller. And for you to be comfortable, you're, you're going to need more than one seat. And sadly, yeah. that's something that unfortunately is just going to continue. Jay Ratliff, let everybody know where they could find you. Uh, JayRatliff.com is the easiest way to reach me if you've got an airline uh, problem. But I tell you, the website to keep a mind on, DOT.gov. If you've got a complaint against an airline, do not complain to the airline. Go to the Department of Transportation. Excellent. Department of Transportation. Jay Ratliff, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. We're coming right back with Open Phone America. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez.
Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. It's Thursday night, hour number three. We call this one Open Phone America, and here's the phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And uh, we talked about a number of things tonight in the first two hours of the program. We talked about some really in-depth analysis on what's going on in Supreme Court with respect to the Trump case, um, the Trump case in particular that we talked about initially was the the Colorado ballot case where they tried to push Trump off the ballot. And it seems like he's going to probably score a big win there for himself staying on the ballot. And then we shifted gears to the other case where they're saying, um, you know, Trump doesn't have any immunity as president. And got some really uh, pretty in-depth uh, analysis there as well, <clears throat> where the the path is going to be a little bit longer and there's a lot of caveats because, you know, while it's a, a legal process, there's a little bit of a political process because there's an election looming and Trump is running for president. And in, you know, one route is to go with the Court of Appeals again, the, the larger full full court rather than a three judge panel which would likely put him back in court before Election Day or to go directly to the Supreme Court, which is probably the better option. Uh, but we don't know how quickly that gets heard either. So very interesting to see the um, the legal predicaments unfolding, but it seems pretty favorable for Trump either way. So uh, that's a quick update on that. And if you missed it, make sure you check it out on the website or the podcast. Now, we also talked about airlines. <clears throat> now, this is pretty interesting. Because with respect to airlines, the final question I had for our guest, Jay Ratliff, was, you know, what do we do with the large people? And the reason I ask is I was large people. I used to weigh 269 pounds. And guess what? When you're 269, you don't look like a really huge fat guy, but you're pretty big and fat. You know, I was wearing size 40 pants, a size 48 or 50 suit jacket. My neck was a 17 and a half, 18 if I wanted to look really, you know, loose. And it was... Um, I didn't fit on a bus seat comfortably. I didn't fit on an airline seat comfortably. And I, I just think to myself, imagine people 100 pounds heavier than me, and there's a lot of 300-pound people out there. What what do you do? So I was talking about that with him, and I'm wondering if, if you've been on, do you have a story, right? If you do, I'd love to hear from you because uh, I, I want to know, A, what's going on with, you know, your, your stories with respect to being on an airline with somebody who's a lot larger than you are, and should airlines be charging double? I think that they probably should, because I don't think we should incentivize people to be larger than they ought to be, because that's not good for your health, obviously. And B, something I opened up the show with, was talking about my conspiracy theory friends. And again, I know they get offended when you call them a conspiracy theorist because they're like, it's not a conspiracy. These things come to true and uh, to, uh, they become truth. And and listen, I'm, I'm not saying they don't. And I'm not writing them off as kooks and quacks. Uh, I do in the sense that these particular theories that the, the um, Supreme Court is going to jail people and send them to Guantanamo Bay to be held on a military tribunal and sentenced to death, that that part, uh, yeah, it's very far-fetched. <laughs> and uh, I'm not signing up for that. Uh, so I, I always have to push back on those. But um, if you have an interesting story on that and the tinfoil hat era, I will get my tinfoil hat and wear it with you and we can talk about that. 
And of course, we're going to get to your calls momentarily. But a couple of stories I want to talk about before the hour is over. And sometimes I get so caught up talking with you guys. The next thing you know, I, I'm I'm like saying goodnight and we didn't get through everything. But check this out. A Utah school board member is now facing calls to resign after a social media post suggests that a regular teen girl was called a transgender. <laughs> and listen, I, I, you know where I'm at with this culture war, but I don't think it's cool to tell a, a teenage girl that may not look the way you want her to look and say, hey, you're a transgender. You know, I think tomboys do exist and you have to be sensitive to that, right? You can't just go, hey, you, you know, you're a whatever. You know, that's that's not cool. Uh, if they tell you that they identify as whatever, then that's on them. And then, you know, you could make whatever commentary you want. But I don't think we should go. It's like telling a woman that has a, a bulge in her stomach and just, you know, without knowing, saying, oh, congratulations. How long are you? How far, you know, how far along are you? And when's when's your due date? And and then for them to say, I, I'm, I'm not pregnant, you know. Just imagine what type of foot and mouth you would have in a situation like that. Those are things we just don't do. And... Other story here, and this one's a little more serious, but one I want to talk about. A woman in Utah sued the police for being arrested for drunk driving, even though she was actually suffering from a subdural hematoma, a brain bleed. How about that? Not good. Not good at all. And, and I've seen video of stuff like that. So I'll get into that when we talk about that a little bit later on. But And, of course, we'll talk a little bit about... Joe El Baboso Biden, because he uh, gave a press conference uh, about four hours ago now, and uh, he was saying he was saying that he has no fault in having classified documents next to his classic Corvette inside his garage. He took no blame. He blamed his staff. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. So uh, keep it locked. Keep it right here with me. And I want to go to uh, let's see. We got Kelvin. Kelvin is calling from Logan, Utah, on KVNU. Logan. I'm sorry, Kelvin, what's going on? Welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, Rich. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. I've Thank you. I've never called a radio station before, but as a former broadcasting student, I appreciate the medium and appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thanks. Um, had never listened before, but I tuned in after work tonight and thought it was really refreshing and kind of a the very grounded take that we need more of right now, so... I uh, appreciate your show. Like I said, it's my first time even listening or calling in, but. Well, amen to that. Um, what 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 did you hear that uh, piqued your interest and, and sparked uh, the desire to call? Well, I was uh, I was listening to when you were talking. I wasn't, you know, taking notes and as dialed as I wish I was. But when you were talking about the legal cases that Trump is facing, and you brought on an expert to talk about some of the situations. And the part that kind of piqued my attention, though, was when you were kind of talking about the the friends or folks in your life that may be conspiracy-oriented when it comes ah, yes. to Trump and are waiting for him to save the day. And that's something that I kind of have faced in my own life. And so it's interesting to hear that, someone else dealing with that. Um, because yeah. so I always make the joke that, my parents' generation loses their parents to dementia, but my generation's going to lose ours to misinformation and conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, you know, th- I, this is a serious thing. 
And and the reason I, I mention it, I, and I, I can't double down on it because nobody's really calling here. And, you know, if they did, we'd have more in-depth conversations about that. And you're bringing it up, so we're going to have that conversation. But the, the the issue that I have is my, my whole angle in all of this is for everybody listening to be a lot more um, informed, right? And and to be equipped with with not just opinion and uh, the ability to debate somebody and win, but more so with fact, with with understanding our constitution, our founding. Uh, to me, that's always the crux of the matter. You have to stand on something, right? Like the old saying, if you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. And ultimately, good arguments come easily, right? We hear them all the time, right? Um, for example, the pro-life, pro-choice argument. It's a, very, it's a very effective argument, very effective to say, but it's a woman's right to choose. It, most people stop and pause uh, unless they've already, you know, played it out in their head and they've made their choice. Or even, you know, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? The the other side of that debate, they're always, you know, well, what do you need an AR-15 for? What do you need of this for? Why would you need a semi-automatic uh, because they, they frame these arguments in different ways, right? So what most conspiracy theories, in my opinion, are framing the argument the wrong way. The, the idea is, is not right and wrong, per se. The idea is America, per se. That's really what we're talking about. And I feel like this country is a, a complicated thing. We have a, an interesting past that I choose to accept. And I think others choose to either ignore or or... Or criticize. And you can do that. I think I can criticize aspects of our history. I can criticize aspects of our government. Uh, I criticize Joe Biden every day, and I love this country. So my thinking is that we we don't have to... A preacher once told me, you know, when you go to a sermon, you listen to a sermon, you don't have to take it all. You can chew the meat and spit out the bones. And and I think that's the same way here. I understand people's desire to, to be right uh, and to to have right, right? They they want to right a wrong. They feel that they were slighted in 2020 with an election that was improperly conducted with mail-in ballots. I get that. Uh, but I also know if I'm walking down the street and someone robs me, maybe there's a camera and maybe I get a description of the assailant and maybe the cops catch him or maybe not. I still got robbed. And, and, and that's, I think, a reality of life. Sometimes there is justice and sometimes there isn't. And and I'm not sold. Maybe I'm a cynic and maybe I'm jaded, but I'm never sold on the notion that that the good guys always win. Joe Biden's in office and and he hasn't been impeached. So, so when I hear something like that, I think, you know, come on. It's not because he's a Democrat. It's because he's really bad at his job and and he's still there. And the fact that Republicans have allowed that to happen, as well as Democrats protecting him and the media protecting him and this and that and the other. So I think, you know, that's a reality of life. There's no justice there. The American people are suffering with inflation and this and that. And it is what it is. So when people approach me, like similar to you, I, I share your, uh, you know, I'll probably repeat your your joke about, you know, losing uh, our, our older generation to dementia and the, the uh, our current generation to misinformation. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's a lot of people that are just swept up in a new way of thinking, uh, in particular, uh, a group that I call the pro-Putin patriots, where they they feel that, you know, things that come out of Vladimir Putin's mouth are like gospel truth. 
And they'll criticize me and say that I, I'm, you know, that no matter what Putin does, I'll always say he's the bad guy because I was trained by the deep state to say that he's always the bad guy. I wasn't trained by the deep state. I just I can smell communism and I've learned enough about communism to know exactly how this guy works. And he, he speaks in a, a dialect that is is very reminiscent to me of, of Hegel and Marx. It's very Hegelian or Marxist. And when you hear that stuff, you can't help but call it out. So when he makes the comments that he makes about the, you know, uh, well, you got to look at your country's problem with transgenderism or you got to look at your country's problem with X, Y and Z or BLM or this and that. uh, He says that out of one side of his mouth and the other side of his mouth, he's making sure that uh, the GRU and whatever other international um, spy agencies he's got at his disposal or hackers or whatever are putting out tons of information and misinformation to and people assets to actually make sure that that's exacerbated on the ground in the United States. And this has been going on for a hundred years. He's learned this tradecraft from from those that came before him, from um, Stalin and Lenin. This has been their plan to destabilize this country for more than a century. So I know that and I've read about this extensively, but I think most people haven't. And and that's why they think, you know, Putin's a great guy. And, when you know, he's bringing up all the problems here. Of course he is. He's creating half the problems here. So that's part of the, the angle that, that I take on that, Kelvin. Right. I, I appreciate that outlook on it because I think I fall in a similar way. And I don't think a lot of these people realize, uh, particularly that kind of middle to older generation, middle age to older, that almost like social media and the availability of information in air quotes right being able to just read about these topics they're not they're not trained in the checks and balances of disseminating information right so like they they see a post on telegram or whatever page and it could be a random user that just posts right twitter especially is, is bad for that and and they'll show it to me like it's gospel and i'm like mom that's a random person like and yeah. I think part of that is what you're talking about with Putin. I think there's a direct effort for misinformation. Like the, the Russian state has to be aware of what's going on with our, how that works in our country now, because there's definitely double, not just double agents. I mean, like bots and social media presences being put out by these countries to destabilize a little bit. And it's working because you have people, you know, middle-class uh, Americans that are like, felt robbed in 2020 and they see something they like that says Putin's a good guy. He's going to fix things and there's going to be martial law to take out the bad guys. And Trump is actually still commander in chief. They, they buy into it because it gives them the answer they're looking for. And I would not be surprised to find out that that's heavily Russian and Chinese influenced. And Iran, Iran has a very massive um, disinformation uh, uh, push in our country and and you're right. And the reason people do that, you know why? Because they're good hearted people and it sounds like the best way forward. And it sounds like right in a wrong situation. And they're they're regular people. These are people that are good hearted, that wake up wanting to love their families and, and, and live their lives. And and I, I, I do do those things. I'm not always good hearted, though. And I realize I've worked in a swamp and I know the players and what they're capable of. And when you you are more informed, I guess, uh, or have different information at your disposal, you realize, man, there there are bad people that are really looking to brainwash us, and and the, the innocent people that are being brainwashed in 
it's 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 a terrible thing, but it's because of their own kindness. It's because of their own willingness to to see a better situation in our country that they they begin to subscribe to these things. And I don't feel like a warrior against conspiracy theories. I just at, there's times where I just you know I think. I can't lose all of my friends and family to to thinking Trump is still the president. Kelvin, uh, I got to run because of the uh, the break and the clock here, but a great conversation. I hope you keep listening, and I look forward to you calling in. Big shout out to everybody in Logan, Utah, KVNU. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. We're going to continue with the rest of your calls. The phone number is 833-482-5337. I see that Count Delacula, our uh, call screener, is in the control room screening the calls right now. Calls from Delaware, calls from Idaho. It's a short segment, so I don't want to cut you off, and I want to give you some time to be able to get your thought out there. And I don't want the music to trample your thoughts. So I'm not going to do a call here because we're out of here in like 40 seconds. But I do want to um, talk a little bit about uh, the culture wars because we have these culture wars that we're constantly engaged in. And it, we're slowly normalizing the idea that people can claim to be whatever they want to be. And, and that seems to be okay. And it's almost like gone are the days where if you say you're a choo-choo train, that we're supposed to, oh, okay, you know, and we're not supposed to say, are you mad? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Anyway, folks, we're coming right back with your calls. Like I said, 833-482-5337. It's Open Phone America with me, Rich Valdez, and I'm looking forward to that. And if you chime in on social media, I'm checking those during the break. So looking forward to hearing from you. Don't go anywhere. Coming right back. what Al and Rachel Vanderbeek were told when school officials showed them a Facebook post featuring their daughter. Utah State Board of Education member Natalie Klein posted with the caption, girls basketball, dot, dot, dot. And I started reading some of the comments. I mean, they were just disgusting. The parents believe Klein insinuated their daughter is a boy. To look at someone's outer appearance and make an assumption that they are either playing in the right arena or not based on the way someone looks 
I don't think is appropriate. The couple describes their daughter as a tomboy. She cut her hair short because that's how she feels comfortable. She wears clothes that are a little baggy. She goes to the gym all the time, so she's got muscles. They told her about the widely circulated post, which Klein has since taken down. We just took her in another room and just started telling her the truth. We, we read her the post. Klein posted a response saying multiple concerned parents shared the picture with her. She wrote in part, quote, My deepest apologies for the negative attention my post drew to innocent students. Klein went on to say, We live in strange times when it's normal to pause and wonder if people are what they say they are because of the push to normalize transgenderism. End quote. The Vanderbeek said they're disappointed Klein posted the picture without fact-checking. I, I really think that she should resign. They said their family is rallying around their daughter, but not every child has that support. I mean, worst case scenario, she could have ended her own life. They have a message to other families experiencing bullying. And I want all the kids to know that it's okay to just be who they are. That is a report from the NBC affiliate in Utah, KSL. And let me tell you, um, this is a very interesting story. I would hate for this to happen to my kid. And I think that this is one of those things that is it's unfortunate, right? It really is unfortunate to, to hear that your kid gets called, you know, any name. Right. But but it happens. And and I think we have to be uh, I don't know. I think we need to be a little bit. I don't know. What's the word I'm thinking here? Uh, compassionate, maybe um, prudent is maybe more the word I'm looking for. Uh, I don't think that should happen. Right. I don't think you should tell anybody's kid that they're this or that unless, you know. Right. Unless if they tell you, you know, I would wait for that. I would wait for somebody to say, well, I identify as a cat or I identify as trigender. Then you say, you know what, take you and your trigenders and do, you know, you can do whatever you want to say after that. But but uh, don't presume that someone is a a cat or trigender or a boy or a girl. Um, You know, if if, uh, and I I think it's okay. Let me reverse. I think it's okay to assume if they're a boy or a girl. Uh, I, I but that wasn't the case here. Right. They, they they accuse them of being transgender, and I think that's um, a step too far. But hey, you know it it it, it is what it is. Uh, I think it's one thing if you know my big brother does it right. He he's one of those guys that always makes a, an off color remark. <laughs> but when you're a school board member, I think you're you know, I, and I am a school board member. I I know that I would never do that. I, you're looking for problems, and I think he's found some. So if all he walks away with is resigning, good. You know, hopefully they don't come after him and try to cancel him and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that could happen. And that's what happened here. But anyway, that's um, Natalie Klein, uh, a member of the Utah State Board of Education, posted earlier this week on Facebook a flyer of a high school uh, girls basketball team in Salt Lake City writing girls basketball. Um, So... I guess they drew the inference uh, that that this wasn't a girl Uh, by just writing girls basketball. I don't know that that. Yeah. And there's an ellipsis after it. I mean, I guess that could be inferred, but to me, it seems uh, a little bit ambiguous. I'd love to hear from Natalie Klein on this. Uh, I'd love to get her response. If we could find her, that'd be great. If she's available, call in. But um, the teen's parents, you heard their interview, and, you know, they were heartbroken. And maybe this is a horrible misunderstanding. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's unfortunate either way. It really is. And what's more unfortunate, this reminds me of the stuff that happened in um, last spring, like April 23 or even June of 23, where there were 
these these videos on TikTok and Instagram that you know you had one person, um, a mom that was you know complaining about she was going to sue the school because her son identified as a cat, and that you you could not you know um, tell my child not to lick their fingers, and the teacher was telling the them not to lick their fingers and she got all upset she wanted to sue i don't know if you remember that but we've got the audio listen to this identifies as a cat and his school is not taking that seriously and i am honestly planning on suing them so yesterday was the first day of school and during class he was licking his paws and his teacher um told him to stop and he didn't so she called me and she was like hey you have to get your son to stop doing this during class to really distract him to the other kids. And I was like, I'm not going to tell my son that he can't express himself. I have raised my son to be who he is. And I just think that it's really sad that these schools are trying to indoctrinate children and, you know, putting them in this mold to make them think that they they need to be they need to act like a human, whatever that means. He's not, he's not a human. He's a cat. Anyway, I, I am planning on suing them um, because they don't accommodate for him. And uh, I just want to know if there's any other parents out there that are having this issue because we can put together a class action. Perate, perate, perate. Wait a second. So I've raised my son to be who he is. So you've raised your son to be a cat? And now, if you did, is he a boy cat or a girl cat? I don't know. But I can tell you, if somebody starts licking their paws like a cat would, you know, real slow and, and feline-ish, um, if that's a word, I'm, I'm going to ask something. I'm, I'm, I'm not just going to pretend that's okay. I, I'm not participating in your psychosis. If you raise your son to be a cat, then you should get a kennel and send your kid to cat school. But don't send him to the school with my kid. So my kid can come home now licking his paws. Imagine that. You're at the dinner table and your kid just starts very slow and finicky and feline-like just licking their paw as if they were a cat. I'm, I'm losing my mind now just reading it and listening to it on the radio. Imagine that actually happening in your home. And then she says the school's indoctrinating the kid. I love the rhetoric. This is fantastic, right? The school is indoctrinating you to think that you're a human. And I'm not going to uh, sit here while my son doesn't get to express himself. Do you hear how crazy that sounds? I mean, look, there's one thing about self-expression. And yes, that's a, it's a First Amendment right. But there's also something about condoning crazy. There's also something about encouraging child abuse. This lady's clear mental issue is unchecked. And now we're allowing her to be mental with her son who thinks he's a cat because of her crazy. And forgive me for lack of a better word. But she's making her problems his problems and they're trying to make it everybody's problem. I think we should just help people. I don't know. You let me know what you think. Your calls are coming up right now. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, it's Open Phone America here on Rich Valdez, America at Night. And I want to go to Bedford, Indiana, WBIW, and check in with our friend Sarah. Sarah, you're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hey, great show as always. And that clip you played about that woman whose kid identified as a cat, that is utter craziness. I don't know, maybe that woman's trying to save money so she can take her kid to the vet and save some money, but I guarantee no vet's going to see the kid and say, oh, yeah, you're a cat, I'll treat him, you know. <laughs> and by the way, licking your hands and then handling pencils, papers, you know, shaking hands with other kids, I mean, that that's really unsanitary. So the teacher has every right to say, don't groom yourself. And, uh, you know, that mom is just um, going to make that kid a, a mental wreck by entertaining that kind of fantasy. Um, and it's really destructive to the kids. And I, I, I just don't see where the, these parents could all uh, let their kids identify as whatever they want to be and just going along with it. it. It's just getting crazier every day. Yeah, you know, Sarah, I think you're, you're right on this one. And, uh, and again, this, this happened, I think, last summer. And it, it was crazy then. It's crazy now. It just reminded me of what's happening with this other case. And, and I, I'm, I'm looking at this, and, and I think, you know, I know you uh, work in the school system. Do you, do you see this in, in the, the schools in your area? Uh, thankfully not. I have had people, worried parents, ask me, do they have litter boxes? And I say, no, our school system is pretty conservative, and Indiana has a law that if your kid identifies with the opposite gender by law, they have to notify the parents, which I think is a good law. The parents should know. Yeah what is going on with their kids' mental state. But, and that, that's what I tell people. If you really want to know if these rumors are true, if they're having litter boxes, just ask a member of the custodial staff. I don't ever see that flying. That is just so unsanitary. Um, cat litter is heavy. It's nasty. Plus, the kid would have to go to the bathroom. And what, I mean, it, it's crazy. So uh, I don't know if there are any schools that are doing this. Our district, thankfully, is not entertaining that craziness. But if you really want to find the bottom of the truth, just ask someone who's a custodian of school. Hey, to let the kids use litter boxes, and that custodian will tell you the truth. And thankfully, we don't have that madness here. Amen to that. I never thought I'd be thankful to say that we're not allowing litter boxes in public school bathrooms, uh, but I am. I'm actually very grateful that that's not happening uh, en masse, right? <laughs> the last thing I, I want to hear is that lots of little kids identify as cats. That would be crazy. Anyway, Sarah, thank you for your call and your uh, and your um, thoughts on this one. Big shout out to everybody listening in Indiana on WBIW. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Biden, the documents, and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833 833- for Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. Rich 
President Biden. Something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. <laughs> oh, you got to love that one. Biden was sharp there in that retort. My memory is so bad, I let you speak. Uh that's uh, Peter Ducey and uh, President Joe Biden uh, trading some barbs there over why he wasn't charged in the documents case. And again, one of our uh, legal analysts earlier in the evening uh, pointed out that this is dangerous precedent that we would set to say, you know, we're not going to charge you for crime because you're old. And you just honestly, it seems like you don't remember and you're a well-intentioned person. I don't think that that should be the criteria. And I'm not saying to put 80 something year old people in prison. For, for everything. Uh, but I am saying we have to have um, a better standard than just saying, I don't think he remembers. So even if he committed the crime, he doesn't remember. So we're just going to keep it moving. And uh, let's, you know, give Trump the electric chair. Right? It's just a very uneven standard of justice here. And again, uneven standard of justice means no justice at all. And Biden, um, you know, he, he, he continues, he doubles down on how good his memory actually is. Listen to this. Your memory has gotten worse, Mr. President. My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. (laughs) I got to tell you, I like it when he gets feisty. I'd get feisty, too, if I was him. Uh, And I don't like Biden in the least, but. This makes for great radio. You know, it gives us good audio clips to to react to and to get your opinions on. But you look at what's going on with Joe Biden, and uh, he's just doubling down, doubling down and doubling down. He says that his memory is terrific, and he's got reporters. You know, I think that's the big story here. Reporters are asking the president how bad his memory is. What they really need to be asking is, is this the result of two open cranial surgeries that you've had? because of uh, the aneurysm and the other thing he's had going on in his brain. And, and that's a real thing, right? Those things cause um, some, some short-term damage and long-term damage, some uh, associated memory loss, uh, the aphasia. That's where he kind of stutters, can't find the words, he gets lost. Uh, it, it's not necessarily all dementia, but I will say, and again, I'm not a medical professional and I'm not diagnosing him. I've seen this happen to my dad who suffered a traumatic brain injury and had something called TBI, traumatic brain injury related dementia. And I saw this happen to my dad where he couldn't find the words. They call that aphasia. He would get very frustrated because he couldn't find the words. And, you know, that's when we see Biden do that. With the, uh, with the, uh, you, you know the thing, right? He gets angry and he says, you know the thing. Uh, because, and I, I'm not faulting him. I'm just saying I would not elect my dad to be president. God rest his soul. You know, I'd probably hire my dad to be a security person, a hitman, <laughs> but not, not president. There's too many things to think of there. And if you can't think of things quickly, accurately, and sharply, and if you lost that recall ability and mental acuity, then what, what, what do you do? Well, you go with somebody who has it, right? Like El Trompito, then Aldous Magnus, the 45th president of these United States, pretty well positioned right now to become the 47th president of this uh, country. But anyway, 
Biden, after doubling down, uh, I'm going to play for you. He he. These things come about because of something that he said. And, and this is what I want to play for you, because he ultimately um, he fumbles things and he forgets things. And that's what prompts the media to ask these questions. Listen to what he says uh, about the um, the president in question here. And in this one, he's talking about the uh, let me see what president is he talking about? Egypt. He's talking about the president of Egypt, but he confuses him with the president of Mexico. Listen to this. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially. The president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate. He didn't want to open up the gate. Let me tell you, this is a, a tough predicament to be in. Paul and Boise, what do you think about what's going on with Biden? Quickly. He's in trouble and we're all in trouble because he's in trouble. And yeah, I, I think you're right. Just before I got on, you know, he's got he's got those surgeries and it creates scar tissue and it creates problems on top of that when you're talking about the cranium underneath underneath the bone of the skull and it's just it's it's a disaster waiting to happen. I hate to say it, but you know, I lost my confidence in him about the first day that he was he was uh getting sworn in. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, after the swearing in, uh, I think a lot of people became concerned, Paul. Uh, big shout out to everybody listening on the app or the website, uh, Rich Valdez, America at night dot com. Paul, thank you for your call. Thank you for everybody that called in today. Great conversations tonight. And yeah, Joe Biden's forgetting stuff. He's got documents all over the place. He's blaming everybody else for what's going on. You know what I say? Until the next time. Hasta la próxima, folks. Uh, It's been great being with you, America. Take care, good night, and God bless. I'm Rich Valdez. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.